Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Crossing, publisher of The Ardent Swarm, a new novel by Yamen Manai, an award-winning novel about bees, about a North African country in the wake of the Arab Spring. It's about a beekeeper. It's about a lot of things. It's a brilliantly accessible modern-day parable in which Yamen Manai uses a masterful blend of humor and drama to reveal what happens to a country shaken by revolutionary change after the world stops watching. The Ardent Swarm, available now from Amazon Crossing. All right. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you wherever you happen to be. I have a great show for you. I have, as my guest, for the second time, Hari Kunzru. He is celebrating the publication of a new novel, or at least the recent publication of a new novel. It is called Red Pill, and it is available from Knopf. Hari Kunzru first guested on this program almost nine years ago to the day in episode 57, all the way back in uh, 2012. He's published five uh, previous novels, White Tears, Gods Without Men, My Revolutions, Transmission, and The Impressionist, and now Red Pill. And this is a book that has worked on me in a strange way. I was trying to explain this to Hari. I'm not sure if I did a good enough job of it. But it's one of these books that kind of hit me upside the head. And the the best comparison that I can make is when you listen to a record or an album, at least back when people used to do that, when you sat and you listened to an entire record, and afterwards... You weren't sure exactly how you felt, and yet you couldn't stop thinking about it, and then you wanted to listen to it again. And then over time, your appreciation for it deepens, and you you start to realize all the different things that it's doing, and it just takes you a little while to catch up to it. That's kind of how I feel about Red Pill. It's a very deeply intelligent, ominous, unexpected gripping, dryly funny book. I could go on with all these descriptors, but it's just a book that gave me a unique experience. 
that I really enjoyed. And I was trying to explain this to Hari, but the problem was that I was kind of in the throes of the immediate aftermath. I had just finished it, and then suddenly I was talking to him, and I felt discombobulated. And that's to his credit. He discombobulated me with his uh, novel. So I really enjoyed the book, and I was uh, grateful for the opportunity to talk with him and I think we should just get to it. So here is my conversation with Hari Kunzru. His latest novel, Red Pill, is out there now from Knopf. Well, originally it's a reference to a film called The Matrix, a very famous science fiction film where uh, the lead, Keanu Reeves, is offered a choice. He's offered the choice of uh, the blue pill or the red pill. If he takes the blue pill... The world as he experiences it will remain the same and uh, he'll carry on just as if nothing had happened. But if he takes the red pill, he will see the world as it is. And that's what he opts to do in the movie. And the revelation is that there's this appalling dystopia in which human beings are kind of plugged into some sort of sort of alien machine. So it became a shorthand for a kind of revelation. And... uh, after a while, it got adopted. Weirdly, it first got adopted by um, pickup artists. These guys who uh, who kind of believe that you know they can teach each other techniques for how to sleep with uh, women, and um, they started referring to being red pilled as understanding that there were these kind of uh, you know surefire techniques that they thought they could use to to do that but from that usage it's gradually migrated into uh into much much wider usage it's generally these days associated with with the outright and as a as a word for um suddenly uh the revelation that the uh world as it's described by i suppose mainstream liberalism isn't true and that their world picture uh, often very conspiratorial and uh, uh, and very kind of uh, brutal in some ways is actually the truth. I mean, you, for example, you see on right-wing forums, far-right forums, you'd have people asking each other, are you red-pilled on the JQ? And the JQ is the Jewish question. So what they're asking is, you know, do you believe in the anti- in their anti-Semitic conspiracy theory? And it's a kind of, um, well, sort of self-serving way of seeing things I mean the idea that you have the truth and that the normies the mainstream people are you know they're, they they're, they're half asleep they're sheeple they're uh, they're uh, you know not they don't understand the world as it is and so you know my use of it for the title is is slightly I- ironic I suppose and it is about this uh, narrator who is a, a sort of liberal intellectual from Brooklyn and his encounter with uh, with a figure of the outright, and with more generally with the idea that some of his preconceptions about the world might be wrong. Hmm. And uh, you know, in terms of the alt right and its online existence, uh, you know, like 4chan, 8chan, these uh, forums online where a lot of the community is formed, the virtual community is formed among these people. I have to confess, I have very little understanding of all this. Your book, I think, kind of hints at it. You don't have, you know, 4chan doesn't factor into the narrative, but you could imagine how it might, like peripherally. 
And I'm curious to know how much research into like alt-right ideology you did, um, you know, to understand the underpinnings of uh, a good part of your book. Well, weirdly, I mean, I've always had, I mean, one of the, re- you know, ever since I got on the internet, I got on the internet quite early, I suppose, relatively speaking. I've, I've been online since the early 90s. And even in that kind of period, there was already a far-right presence on on the net. And one of the interests I had in the early days was kind of keeping in touch with subcultures, which I wasn't a part of, or, you know, people who are very, very distant from, from me. And so I sort of developed a, a, a kind of, slightly weird self-hating hobby i suppose you'd call it of of occasionally (laughs) um of just hanging out on some of these far-right sites just to see what you know what it was you know how they talk to each other how how their ideas you know were were formed um and so i mean this was the sort of thing that i used to do occasionally in 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 downtime to sort of go on sites like stormfront and and see these you know see see what the nazis are talking about today um and then sometime in the early 2000s, uh, uh, a leftist activist friend of mine uh, sent me some screenshots from uh, 4chan, which I'd never heard of uh, at the time. And it was of a, something called a raid that they had done there. At the time, there was a, there was a, a kind of, uh, I suppose you'd call it a little virtual world that was aimed at um, young people, children, teenagers, called Habbo Hotel. And the denizens of 4chan had decided it would be it would be good fun to all kind of make avatars and go into this world and just start sort of causing problems. And so they'd made these very sort of stereotypical black avatars with with afros. They always looked a bit like sort of Samuel Jackson in that um, Tarantino movie. And they had stood in a swastika shape, you know, in such a way that it blocked the exit to a particular room. And so there were all these kind of trapped kids. Uh, um, and every time anyone asked, you know, could you get out of the way, they would they would say various sort of ob- obscene and, and racist things. And uh, and my friend was very freaked out by this. He thought this was a sort of vector for for young far right organizing. And I wasn't so sure. So I I went on 4chan and I had a period of of spending not posting there, but just looking at it. I mean, in a kind of like appalled car crash kind of way, feeling like the guy at the end of. Uh, clockwork orange you know with my eyes sort of uh, wide open because there's this kind of arms race of disgustingness that they're engaged in there's this kind of gross out humor but but it was a sort of competition to see who could say or assert the most extreme and outrageous things and um, a lot of it was sort of flirting with illegality as well and and it I, I was online at one point when somebody posted a picture of a pipe bomb and said that they were about to to go to their school and uh, plant this bomb, and um, the reactions were extraordinary to me. The arena, the reactions weren't like, "My God, don't do this." They were like, "Oh, that doesn't look like it would work. Look, what are you doing? That technically, you should be able to make a better pipe bomb than that." And there was, and the the sort of the pose was very much like you could, the nothing will shock us. It's the real teenage boy pose of, you know, I'm so tough that I can, I can deal with anything. Um, and as it turned out, this guy had firstly constructed his pipe bomb out of a plastic pipe. So it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. But secondly, somebody had gone to the police with it. So he was arrested before he, he did anything else. 
I was going to say, I mean, like at some point when you're observing this, do you feel a sense of responsibility? Like, oh my, do I need to alert somebody? I mean, as it turned out, I was, I was on after the fact. I mean, one of the things with 4chan is, and, and that whole model, there are many sites like that now, is it's, it's, um, dis, it's, it's not archived. You, and, and, it's, uh, and it's kind of like this constant froth. If people like something or they're interested in it, uh, in it, it kind of bubbles up to the top and is easy to see. If you post something and nobody's interesting, it just kind of falls to the bottom and then vanishes. And there's no record of it. There's no log. So pe- that's another reason why people can say very extreme things. And the, also the culture is that nobody posts under their real name. And it's to the extent that um, the, the, they all term themselves anons or anonymous um, I mean, you, you probably heard the phrase you know, anonymous because at certain a, a points slightly later on, they all got involved in a big battle with the Church of Scientology, and uh, um, which is a whole other story. But at this point in the early aughts, when I was looking at it, it seemed to be largely teenage white boys in the US and, and was there was a sort of flirting with extreme misogyny and, and racism. And what's happened in the intervening time is that the heavy dose of irony that uh i felt that a lot of people were posting with got stripped away and um i mean one uh one thing that happened actually is that they did raid some genuine whiteness committed political white nationalist sites and then piqued the interest of white nationalists who realized that they were ripe for being organized and being converted so a much more serious and um, focused kind of extremism began to grow up on the site about a decade later. You know, I mean, at the time, I thought what I was seeing was just sort of edgelord nonsense of the kind that is in a lot of places in the internet, particularly extreme. But I didn't take it seriously in a political way. And so when it pops up in 2015-ish, as a site for organizing the kind of wiggier end of the sort of pro-Trump world, it was a surprise to me how a lot of the, I mean, it seemed like, the, you know, the kids had grown up and they got much more vicious. And a lot of the, a lot of the, um, a lot of the attitudes, was, they were serious now. And, and that's what we've seen. I mean, I never, ever would have predicted that it would have such a sort of impact outside its tiny Milieu. I mean, there's a longer story to tell. Like, as I said, in the intermediate period, there was a period where they went on a kind of crusade against Scientology because about the only thing that um, 4chan and the Chan culture agrees with itself about is that information wants to be free on the Internet and Scientology's practice of secrecy and its copywriting of its teachings and so on was a sort of, you know, a red flag, a red, red rag to a bull to them. Um, and so they went, I mean, but around about 2010, 2011, they had this kind of quite amusing fight with the Scientologists. Um, but then they became a very sort of serious site for radicalizing people into the far right. I mean, they, they aren't the only place. There, there is a, a various Reddit forums. And, and more recently, since there's been a kind of crackdown, all that sort of stuff has moved on to Telegram and, and other kind of more and discord servers and very sort of much more private spaces but at the time it was a space that somebody like me could just sort of wander into and 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 see this process taking place and i became more and more sort of disturbed by it in the in the more sort of recent recent years and 
had been kind of keeping tabs on it and and as it became a sort of force in in real world politics i realized that there was it was so sort of out of the um experience of a lot of people who are used to you know they're used to the usual political forums they're used to the sort of public speech and the kind of ways that people behave in a much more traditional um political conversation and so this this arrival of 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 pepe the frog and and his uh 4chan allies really blindsided people but i've been but i'd been kind of aware of it actually for years and years and i but you know i mean like a lot of people i hadn't taken it as seriously as i perhaps ought to have done Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, okay. Yeah. And I think too, there's like a chicken or egg question that occurs to me as I think about all this stuff, because, you know, you have a character in your novel, um, named Anton, who is a, a kind of a, a, I guess you would call him an elite figure of the alt-right or, you know, somebody who has like cultural cachet and money and um, certain ideological stances that congeal pretty well with the environment you just described. And I think of it in a, um, you know, in the, in the political realm, in the environment that we've been living in, especially for the past few years, and I wonder about the existence of these communities online, these teenage boys, you know, who kind of grew up and got meaner and more more literal. And I think about figures like Steve Bannon, who I feel like Anton, the character in your book, you know, to me, he feels kind of like an echo of somebody like Bannon. And, and I'm thinking to myself, like, is somebody the puppeteer? Is somebody manipulating this or is it a situation where it it grows organically? And then they're just exploiting what's already there. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, I, like absolutely. And I, and I think you know the answer inevitably is is both. There's an there's an organic uh, movement there for people to exploit, but there are very it's in various people's interests to have that grow because it's disruptive. I mean, without you know, and you don't really have to get terribly conspiratorial about it to see that um, that you know that that you know people people put money into this people put um people put time and effort and resources into it you know on, on there are people like bannon i mean bannon's you know trying to still uh trying to put together his strange kind of you know crusader training school in italy right now i mean i i just heard he um 
the Italian government has withdrawn his permission to use this old monastery. But, you know, he's clearly a person who has access to serious sources of money. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're familiar with um, the... Um, Oh, no, I'm sort of blanking on her name. The woman who has funded a lot of, uh, of has Rebecca Mercer. Yeah, so so yeah, that's right. Rebecca Mercer has put money into Parler and Breitbart and various other forums of this kind, and there are donations that are given to prominent figures who were essentially figures of the of the Chans. And um, so I I would say that. You know, clearly anybody who has a has an interest in sort of disrupting, let's say, the liberal consensus would have a reason to kind of promote these people, even if they don't actually necessarily agree with all the positions, just on the grounds that uh, that uh, disruption, you know, creates opportunity. I also noticed that there's a very, very strong interest in in this kind of politics and this kind of um, worldview from quite elite figures in the tech world. Um, you, I mean, Peter Thiel is a, is sort of well known for his libertarian politics and his support of of um, you know of uh, more in a fairly far to the right, but still quite kind of mainstream figures. But just in kind of cultural terms, you know, you notice people like uh, Palmer Lucky or Elon Musk, you know, very rich guys who can afford to sort of you know drop a little money in 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 the direction of of these kind of people i mean musk is certainly somebody who who tweets memes and is kind of in, you know he's plugged into this culture you know I, I, i'm not in any way sort of suggesting that he's a you know he's a white nationalist or has you know any particular political beliefs but a lot of the it's this sort of osmosis into the cultural conversation through humor through memes through little cultures or cultural sort of nods and winks and for well, a... well i should i should interrupt like elon musk tweeted about taking the red pill like you know i mean not that that is is defining because i mean anybody could make that joke i guess if you're making a matrix reference but it does at least give you pause and it was so interesting that like, who responded i mean i i mean you know ivanka trump kind of endlessly annoy you know immediately like taken um, yeah, and, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, all sorts of people responded to that. And, you know, these days when you say take take the red pill again, it's not necessarily a kind of straightforward assertion of a particular set of far right beliefs. But it's certainly an assertion that you believe that the liberal consensus about uh, uh, how the world is or the presentation of the world through mainstream media is fake or incorrect and and you know and de facto that that leads to a lot of a lot of other things i mean the, i mean the, the the world of q is is unthinkable without the the prior world of the chans as a kind of incubator for it and i don't think yeah and i don't think mainstream american particularly mainstream american culture has quite wrapped its head around this um and you know the the narrator that you're presenting in your novel is I, I guess some kind of proxy of you, uh, you know, especially now that I know that you were on 4chan in the early aughts. <laughs> That's kind of the um, the picture that you're painting of your narrator is somebody who's got kind of a a good antenna and is receiving all of these signals, and you know, trying to put it all like trying to put the puzzle pieces all together. 
uh, and to make sense of it is is no easy feat, you know, in the digital and media environment that we live in. I mean, what I wanted to do with the book was to just just to give a sense of of a sort of slide or a sense that I've. I mean, my experience of the last few years has been of 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 of, of wondering how far things were going to go, and trying to kind of calibrate the sense that there was a very sort of profound shift going on. And I, I mean, I have to say, I don't think that shift has been ended by the uh, uh, the dismissal of, of Trump. I think it's a larger thing. And I think it's, uh, you know, in a, in a way, what we're living through is is the internet as a sort of acid or solvent eating away the, uh, the norms of the pre-internet age. But I, the novel sort of starts off as if it's going to be a kind of campus comedy you know he's he, this this guy is offered a residency a prestigious residency in germany and there are some colorful and annoying characters that he's with and so there's this and that's a sort of understand it's almost a sort of genre it's a very sort of familiar I, idea the the grumpy the grumpy intellectual who's going to spar with his his peers and then and then it slides away from that as you say into into a kind of examination of his his state of mind as he gets more and more untethered from uh from from reality and he does yeah he has a he has a breakdown and i mean the book is fairly is explicit that this is a you know this is a a sort of psychotic break that he has but the question that interests me is in a sense is that the rational reaction to now it is the is this feeling of 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 panic and, and and horror and and a sense of being unmoored and 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 not having your bearings anymore isn't that actually in some ways the correct reaction to 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 have in in these times to be scrambling for you know to to understand that the terms and conditions which you were you know understanding things by are no longer functioning um and there is this sort of uh you know, at the center there, the, the narrator sort of perceives that he's in in a kind of uh, uh, agonistic battle with this uh, this guy Anton, who's uh, as you say is a, you know he's a guy with a lot of cultural capital who seems to be surreptitiously using his position as a, the showrunner of a, of a popular cop show to sort of seed certain sorts of sort of nihilistic rightish ideas into the culture and. You know, Anton, you know, he's not exactly Bannon. He's a kind of younger, a sort of hipper character than than Bannon. But he's he's a composite of all sorts of uh, all, all, all sorts of figures from that world. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the ideas that interests me particularly about the actual serious kind of far right people is that there is a they have a very calibrated understanding of how they need to function in the world in the in the worlds that they move in if for example you are in la you're working in tv um you can't wear your white nationalism on your sleeve you have to get you have to be under the radar in some way so there's this phrase about hiding your power level uh and, and you find conversations going on online about uh, when you reveal your power level to people so you're you'll do these kind of masonic hints to those in the know you know and you might kind you know you which will allow you to sort of scout out people who actually think like you but and, and as far as uh people who aren't in the know are concerned you're not you're not saying anything um outrageous or you know overtly anti-semitic or whatever it would 
be and so the idea of a character who has this access to people you know through through the medium of television and drama you know such a sort of popular form but is also on the down low quite involved in organizing and and you know has a has a sort of political agenda was a fascinating one to me is a in a slightly paranoid way i mean it's a paranoid book and uh, you know, but yeah it is but it's also it's also i mean i i made the bannon comparison like a, a cooler bannon um <laughs> uh, you know uh would maybe be the better way to put it but bannon you know he owns part of seinfeld like he had hollywood aspirations and you know he's yeah, dabbled I mean, out there's, here there's His... some terrible bannon um scripts in existence and right and um i mean there was also that amazing kind of involvement that he had with uh with the um the kind of what was it called there was a sort of a uh, biosphere that's it the, the biosphere project back in uh, the 80s and early 90s where they were trying to kind of work out how to you know whether you could make a self-sustaining biosphere you know artificial biosphere for colonizing mars he ends up in the middle of that which is he's always had a utopian streak bannon i mean that's one of the, the interesting thing about him is that he's not just a standard issue republican party cynic with a with a set of uh you know unpleasant beliefs about his own superiority the man is the man is a utopian and the man the man has that kind of vision of absolute transformation that is that is um you know it's it's extremely destructive and and uh, uh and, a, and a very sort of violent vision but he's he's uh he's not pragmatic in the way that you know the standard issue sort of republican who's looking for tax cuts and judges is no, he wants to dismantle the whole system. I mean, as far as I understand it, and I think that you know brings me to uh, a question, like a logical question about Bannon and about Rebecca Mercer, and about anybody in a position of leadership, uh, politically, culturally, or otherwise, in you know, uh, in that part of the right wing. What is their end game? What does Rebecca Mercer want? Why is she doing this? You know, like. What does Steve Bannon? Steve Bannon wants to create what, like a white supremacist, white nationalist government, like that's libertarian and stripped down of all social safety net. Like, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Re- Rebecca Mercer is 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 really quite a mystery to me, as is as is her her father. I mean, Bannon certainly seems to have a sort of nativist angle doesn't he i mean he you know he 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 wants and he seemed and he he seems to believe in this clash of civilizations idea there's the the values of the west which he you know in the broadest possible terms imagines as a sort of enlightenment rationalism and and the scientific method and i don't know adam smith or whatever else it would be uh, against the benighted brown hordes you know infamously he recommended everybody read a novel called camp of the saints this french novel from the 1970s that is about a kind of overwhelming tide of immigration this kind of brown tide of humanity led by a, a sort of fakir figure and you know that culminates in the heroic white defenders um machine gunning these the you know as they literally sort of come up the beach it's this kind of d-day type uh you know defense of the west and and you know a lot of a lot of these people are, have a very apocalyptic vision i mean you know if you get into the really sort of nasty end of it um the sort of things that the, the christchurch uh mass murderer was interested in you get a lot of re- a lot of references to the gates of vienna and the uh, battle against the ottoman turks in the 17th century and uh 
you know, this sense of a sort of civilizational collapse. I mean, it's very melancholy in a way. I mean, they're, they're simultaneously saying we're the greatest and the best and we deserve to be on top and it's our natural destiny and, oh, no, we're at the end. We're, you know, these are the end times. These are the last days of civilization and we're just a few civilized people in our, in our tower as the brown hordes come. I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely incoherent notion in, in one way and it, and it depends on, on this sort of essentialist idea that, that you know, only the bearers of, of, of the blood are, are the bearers of that civilization you know somebody like me if i come along and i read goethe it doesn't count um so you know i mean it's, it's a very it's a very kind of peculiar notion um and that's where sort of bannon bannon kind of is further away from someone like teal i mean uh, peter teal is an interesting figure is a very sort of pure libertarian i mean you know he he seems to want to kind of cut the guy ropes and float off into space you know him and his uh his buddy Patry Friedman, this guy who set up, uh, the, or, you know, wants to set up the idea of seasteading, you know, literal communities in international waters, free of the of the of of, of national law. And there's a there's a kind of uh, there's a politics around a libertarian politics around which uh, you know which imagines a sort of pure political organization based around. Um, you know the idea of uh, of exit, uh, the idea that you know you ought to be in a kind of contractual relationship with any sort of politics, you know, any any kind of organisation that you're part of, and that if you don't like it, you should be able, in a very friction-free way, to leave. And so there's there's quite a kind of elaborated idea of this that uh, you know big formations like America or the EU should be broken down into what they call a patchwork, a much more uh, of, of kind of micro states and micro organizations which will compete in this sort of market like way to attract talent and the talent you know then signs on uh, in a kind of binding way to the whatever the terms and conditions of the particular micro state are and if you want to break your contract you have to leave but if you're you know if you're going to stay part of it you you know the the there's no notion of sort of lobbying or or kind of the the public square or anything like that it's very axiomatic you can see how it kind of appeals to um selfish people people <laughs> well i mean it, i mean but, but you know this is the sort of Ayn rand idea of you know selfishness is rational like you know what's irrational altruism is you know is is, is foolishness um um, and, you know, and it, it purports to be very realistic because it's, you know, it says, well, you know, if everybody acts in their own self-interest, then you know they'll take they'll take whatever sort of rational calculations they need to take in order to maximise that self-interest, and you create a structure where the best version of how to run things wins. I mean, you know, it's a politics that seems to me to not survive contact with the real world at all and to to sort of exist in 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 its pure form purely as a sort of you know digital creature it's again you know, this is what I was, I was saying about it's it's attractive to software engineers who like to think in terms of sort of flowcharts and you know and or xor kind of decision trees um but it absolutely rejects the mechanisms of democracy and the kind of uh messy cultural gray areas in which you know in which for, for good or ill we actually um do exist as 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 political actors but it's it, so it is another kind of utopianism a sort of pure libertarian utopianism it's different from steve bannon's sort of uh, ethno state 
um but it's um you know and there are various other people on the right who have uh kind of traditionalist catholic notions of a, of you know ending the separation of church and state and you have this kind of integralist idea of you know building the city of god you know according to i don't know either i mean i mean there's a weird there's a weird kind of route that some of these guys go down as ending up as orthodox christians i think it's because you know, the, mo- the, the most sort of uh elaborate kind of traditional submission to the will of god is uh uh is is attractive in fact some of the nazis end up as muslims which is a very weird very minor 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 kind of pathway but some of the very extreme fascists have kind of flipped the switch and ended up as uh, islamic fundamentalists no kidding you know for, for no for sure the guy i mean there's a guy in britain who who was infamous as, as the founder of uh, of one of the most violent is a terrorist organization basically called combat 18 that was a that was a nazi terrorist organization and he renamed himself ibn something or other and was sort of photographed with with his prayer beads and a long beard and justifying 9-11 i mean there's a kind of there's a sort of you know there's there's a transgressive impulse that drives some some of these guys there's a sort of absolutist impulse that drives some of them i think that's very different from the sort of kind of techno rational uh kind of libertarian thing but um but they intersect in very strange ways in in some of these online spaces and and uh and the kind of extreme right is a funny sort of mixture of these different different constituencies yeah that is funny you know it's or it's just interesting to stop and think about the complexity of it because it can be easy to oversimplify and imagine it's just this massive horde of like white supremacists but everybody's coming to it with all these intersecting agendas and where i always fall and i'm no master of this subject matter but to me it's like it seems pretty obvious that we're all in this together like we're all interconnected and that we're all interdependent and that does not discount the importance of individual liberty but you have to sort of come to a place of sane equilibrium between those two ten you know the, the tension there like am i crazy like why why is this so hard i think the pandemic has really shown us the limits of this kind of hyper you know ne- call it, i mean call it neoliberal view of the world which you know i mean in a sense liberalism is very good at the individual and very bad at understanding the group because um you know when we you know the, the 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 bias is always towards um individual rights and freedom from coercion by a group but what happens when public health for example depends on depends on you know shows how interdependent we are networks of mutual aid need to need to be in existence in order to help people survive certain things so there's a real challenge to a kind of hyper individualism that the pandemic has brought forward and i i mean and i would say that you know it is a is one reason why the us and and you know britain has has fared quite badly is because the kind of political instincts of the people in charge uh uh you know aren't to justify not just sacrifice but just kind of mutual care i mean an ethics of care is a very interesting thing to think about right now and you know i mean you're 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 right in the I, I mean i think a lot of you know let's say that the tech industry and and skews youngish maleish and whitish 
and 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 incel-ish. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, but these sort of young, you know, young guys are, you know, feel they're pretty invulnerable. Don't like being told what to do, and imagine freedom is definitely freedom from some sort of, you know, from mom. Um, you know, from some sort of, you know, larger coercive force. And and I can see why a, why a politics which just, you know, which allows you to justify why you shouldn't have to bother about people who, the, the weak, the halt and the lame is is attractive in that way. And, there's, and the idea of a kind of, you know, self-optimization is a big thing. Um, uh, biohacking. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 you know, even even in sort of less extreme ways than that, you know, productivity. I'm very interested in in the kind of ideology of productivity and the way that we're supposed to just be be you know making ourselves better. You know, which obviously begs the question: is you know better for what or for whom or to do, to do what? And you know, and um. And it is, you know, it's put. It's the idea of, of the sort of pushing the idea that the human community is a limit that you need to transcend, rather than something that you should, you know, that that you 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 can have benefits and joy participating in. I mean, that's that's a a strong tension in our culture at the moment. You know, the idea of of kind of breaking you know breaking free and going off to mars on to in your sort of libertarian space colony is is <laughs> is a kind of just sort of a very a more extreme version of of the the ideology of, of sort of dieting and going to the gym to make yourself like just slightly better than the next person with whom you're in competition yeah i feel like there are among the you know the the technology class or the technocrats you have the uh these like high priests of self-optimization. Uh, a lot of them have podcasts <laughs> um, and they write books and like, there's just, and it's mostly male, you know, it's all these guys like vying to sort of like reduce their body fat to 3% and, you know, increase their cognition and get an edge. Basically it's like, it's a, it's like the rat race on steroids. It seems to me. And I find myself, only able to tolerate engaging with it for like a few minutes before I get exhausted. I'm just like, ugh. Like if this is the way things are going, like we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, yeah, rest and relaxation. And it, uh, very culturally under underrated right now. I mean, you know, my, you know, my question is, yeah, who are you optimizing for? I mean, maybe you know, maybe you feel you're, you know, it's it's better for you to live longer or to live more healthily, and that's you know that's completely fine. But a lot of it seems to me a sort of internalization of an ideology that really benefits your employer rather than you. You know, if if you know if you're vying with everybody else at your level in big corp, whatever it would be, you know, it, it to to you know to who can I mean, like years ago, I mean, my first proper job was at a magazine called Wired. Uh, in the mid nineties, uh, um, you know, you must know it. You know, which had this, you know, so tech magazine that at the time was this um, sort of, you know, it's the tip of the spear of that kind of West Coast libertarian culture. And I remember I arrived there, and somebody says to me, you know, if you're not prepared to sleep in the crawl space of your desk you clearly don't enjoy your job enough. And I'm like, it had never occurred to me just to want to sleep in the crawl space of my desk, right? And, you know, I learned I learned a great deal from that job, and you know about the the things that it was permissible to kind of imagine for a technological future, and the things that it wasn't. You know, I made some good friends there, and 
and you know and it was it was it was in some ways a kind of great place but it was also a place where i was very much against the grain of a, of a particular sort of uh of techno utopianism that later on i kind of pieced together what i'd as a, you know as an early 20 something in a in a in a in a in London as well you know I mean I, I'd, I'd kind of come into contact with something that has metastasized into being such a sort of major part of our culture now and yeah it's it's um I mean the founder of the founder of why turned out to be to, to be somebody who had sued Berkeley back in the late in the late 60s or early 70s for interrupting his education by allowing Vietnam protests on campus he was that guy really <laughs> interesting what's his name i i, I should know that guy, guy called Louis rosetto okay and uh, you know and he was you know he was an absolute straight up libertarian and 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 i mean i it was very alien to me as a sort of london boy at that time to come into contact with that you know he was absolutely about get rid of the government transcend all human limits you know i met people who were i mean they used to call themselves extropians i don't know if extropians really exist anymore but they were all about life extension and you know biohacking and and smart drugs and the whole kind of thing and it was all about you know the human is a sort of horizon which we must transcend what and and, and like all these you know elon musk and jeff bezos like they all want to go to space and they all want to go to mars i look at mars and i'm like i have like less than zero interest in going to that place it looks like <laughs> it looks like hell I'm like what I, I, what is the allure it looks like the kind of yeah the sort of in between bits of nevada yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> and it's freezing. It's like it's like, but it's like like seventy degrees below zero. Like, what are people thinking? I mean, I, I you know, I, 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 I feel like it's the yeah. I mean, it, it's it's the beyond, isn't it? I mean, there's there's a conversation to be had about the special place of the frontier in in in, in American cultural thinking, and you know what happened when the railways finally joined up and there was no place to go you know it was the high frontier of the space race and and i think i mean i think there's a generational thing and i think those the dudes like musk and bezos were were kids who grew up i mean you know as i as i did i mean i remember the you know the the sort of ray gun type science fiction story where you know you were you were jetting off into into an exciting future and um I mean, I think you know the fact that they're they're so wealthy that they can afford to to put their childhood dreams into into practice is is I suppose I don't know what I don't know what it is, but I think that's where it comes from. I don't know why Bezos has a has a rocket. He knows, you know, he seems to me like a guy who'd, who'd probably be happier by the pool. I mean, Musk Musk clearly has to have a rocket. I mean, Musk Musk stuck his own his <laughs> Tesla into orbit around Mars, didn't he? Ever. I mean, like, you know, Bezos, talk about, like, biohacking. Like, the guy was, like, a schlubby nerd in the beginning, and now he looks like Lex Luthor with, like, you know, a steroid habit. Like, I, I look at somebody with that much wealth, and I'm thinking, why can't he be, like, his ex-wife and, like, try to help people that are here? He's trying to go to, trying to, go to Mars. Like, if you want to explore space, that's great. I, I'm not anti-exploring Mars, but this idea that we're going to create a massive human colony there in an environment that harsh and unforgiving and without water i mean maybe some people would enjoy it well, but it, it suggests it suggests that you want to trash this planet doesn't it i mean it's kind of worrying if you're thinking that looks like a good option then you must really be intending to kind of use the facilities here until they're worn out right 
Right. Um, so I want to, you know, now that we've talked a lot about like the libertarian and like the alt-right, um, another aspect of your book, and correct me if I'm misapprehending it, but like, like you do offer a critique of, um, you know, the left, at least to some degree, in the section of your book that takes us sort of out of the narrator's narrative and into the narrative of Monica, which is a really arresting section. It's like a hard turn in the book uh, that I, I didn't see coming. And I should say, too, like I, I think like as a general rule and certainly with your book, I try to like read nothing about the book before reading it, including the flap copy. Um, like I barely even want to look at the title. You know what I'm saying? I just like to go in and just see what happens. And so I didn't see. Me too. Very, yeah. I, I like to take things on their own terms and it's, it's, it's the, much the best way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I was just like delightfully like, whoa, where's this going? And then, you know, it, at, at least for me as a reader, it spoke to um, my own skittishness that can sometimes arise when I observe um, the political left in this country. Um, can you talk a little bit about your sense of, of how things function and kind of dovetail in our political spectrum? I mean, the Monica story is is the story of a you know which is which is like a sort of like a wedge into a into a, a book that's otherwise very occupied with the the experience of the narrator. I mean, Monica is is somebody who's who grows up in the in eighties East Germany and is a sort of rebellious punk kid. And her and she's basically systematically destroyed by the Stasi. And 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 her her experience is very you know it was something that I I researched quite heavily because one of the starting points of my thoughts about the book was about privacy and about the the sense of um the sense of needing a private space of selfhood free of judgment and free of uh and free of surveillance in order a sort of a sort of scratch pad or 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 uh, you know just a, a place of experimentation where before you go out in public so to speak with your presentation of yourself or your ideas there has to be some some area where you can kind of work things out and and you should have the choice when to present yourself in public you know i mean one of the sort of the horrors of totalitarianism is this kind of the notion of the engineer of human souls or the 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 idea of a of a kind of state that wishes to have access to that inner life and to control what's thinkable rather than just how people behave or or, or what they they say in in public and you know, I mean, it, one of the when I got to Berlin, you know, I mean, I did do a residency in Berlin, and I sort of stole the physical location of that residency for the novel and put a different institution into the into the building. And when I got there, I knew I wanted to write something about that part of Berlin's history, which was to do with the sort of the surveillance state, and I imagined that I would be probably talking about dissidents or political dissidents or intellectuals and what i discovered was that they had they had spent a huge amount of resources uh, on teenage punks um they were convinced that that punk was a was a kind of western backed plot to subvert the morals of, of east german youth um and so i mean and the the stasi operated in a very uh, in, in, uh, it was, it's it's kind of a beggar's belief really um, 
the resources that they would put into into kind of surveilling people and they wouldn't just watch people they would actively there was something called zersetzung or corrosion or undermining which was a set of psychological techniques that they were taught at a Stasi university in Potsdam which was about sort of the demolition of the personalities of the people who were their targets it was making people's friendships impossible making people's psychologically are uncomfortable it was about invading their personal space in a very literal way you know often they just let themselves into people's apartments and just sort of mess with stuff you know they'd, they'd change things around they'd kind of break small items or they'd leave your f- photographs out on the bed or something like that and you know the rights critique of the left in general is that is that it's uh you know it wishes to make a new human in order to kind of fulfill the utopian notion of a good society whatever that is and that in some way leftist ideas will always uh tend towards this kind of uh controlling and this kind of invasiveness into the subjectivity of of people you know i mean i actually think that there's a kind of uh, you know i mean i identify as a, as, a, as, a, as a man of the left and and i i think there's a much more kind of pragmatic version of of left politics that doesn't require you to kind of you know tinker with people in that way in order to fit them better to the utopian society that you're trying to make i think you know there are many very sort of pragmatic and nailed down reasons for as we've been talking about you know care and community and mutual aid and interdependence these kind of these kind of uh thoughts you know i mean my read of of the current sort of situation in the u.s is that um by and large i think the whole council culture thing is wildly overblown for political ends um because it's you know the the idea of the you know you you can't you know you can't speak out of line or you know you i mean the idea of cancellation is this kind of I don't know, disappearance uh, you know it's it's a sort of uh uh, you know, it, it has these uh, overtones of, of Stalinism and, the, you know, the erasure of Trotsky in the photographs next to Stalin, you know, the idea about the wrong thing and so on. And um, there are complicated reasons, I think, why that politics has come about. And, there, and, and some of it is a kind of very defensive politics, because I think, you know, certainly in the... I mean, I don't know. I was around for the for for a previous round of the culture wars as a as an undergraduate in the late eighties. You know, there was there was a you know there were fights about so called political correctness and 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 that kind of thing, and and fights about language and fights about uh, you know there was uh, there's a sort of you know I mean my sense of things is that you know we could all use exactly the right words and be terribly civil to each other and nothing would structurally be changed about the situation at all. That that um that fighting about language is in some ways a kind of red herring and what's you know what you're trying to change is to ch- to change who has money and power um you know how that's distributed in in society but you know i i you know i i i think there there have clearly there are clearly situations where i mean especially when you get into the the rather sort of i would say the sort of liberal inflected diversity politics which considers everything as a sort of personal sin or a personal job to can reconstruct yourself to be you know not racist or whatever or whatever it is that's a kind of you know that's an ask that's impossible to fulfill in a society where structurally there are things that are not in your control you know i mean you know the the i mean the question is actually much harder than getting you know getting people to 
to examine their own motivations for things and 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 and, you know, and try and be better i mean I, think, I don't think that's a bad thing to do i think it's a reasonable thing to do but i mean it's often kind of presented in this kind of you know you've got to reprogram yourself or or face oblivion one of the things i want to compliment you on is how beautifully you portrayed how the stasi develops an asset and breaks a person down um i think i have maybe a heightened fascination about that because of the you know the strange dealings between russia and the united states uh, in the last administration all this talk of assets and how you know certain uh, power figures in the american political class might get co-opted by a foreign adversary for example um, but as an extension of that kind of behavior and those kinds of relationships, um, I was thinking about what you were saying about the Stasi and how they mess with people. And then I was pro uh, projecting that into digital culture. Uh, and it's like, you know, you think about you being on online in the early aughts looking at 4chan with like some curiosity and fascination and kind of like creeping horror and then you think about bad actors all over the globe, whether it's at home or abroad, looking at the advent of social media, which was really around 2005. It was that same time, you know, when Facebook launched and how the lessons learned in a pre-digital military and intelligence class could be overlaid onto digital culture. And I think that's what we've seen. Is it not? I think I think that's true. I mean, certainly in terms of uh, if you think about censorship and about how information flows around. I mean, you know, back in the you know the utopian '90s days of Wired, you know, the idea that information wanted to be free was a kind of uh, uh, belief that uh, that in some way the internet was going to transcend certain sorts of borders and national boundaries and that was going to be unmitigatedly a good thing it was going to make certain traditional censorship impossible what it's turned out to be the case is that is that you can't necessarily prevent people from getting hold of information you know unless you have an infrastructure like china perhaps is putting into into place but you can make it impossible for people to discern the truth from from lies um, you know, I mean, uh, to Bannon's famous phrase about flooding the zone with shit. Uh, like when you want to kind of uh, discredit uh, a, a, a voice on on the internet, you you know you can't kind of switch them off necessarily, but you can create many sort of subtle refractions and opposition, and they, you know have twenty other people shouting in this you know about the same thing in slightly different ways, and thus basically make the cost of discerning the truth too high for the normal person to bother going into like you know try, you think about all the russia related stuff and you know in, during the kind of Mueller inquiry period of the of the the trump administration now every single fact was disputed every single event was disputed you couldn't get into you couldn't kind of make a quick kind of study about to decide for yourself what you thought was going on because the cacophony of voices made that impossible and again without getting conspiratorial about it that is an old technique of of intelligence services they know how to discredit a truth teller it's in its by kind of pre, um you know admit nothing deny everything make counter accusations that's the old uh, those that's what you're you're taught at spy school 
um and 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 we've seen that become a kind of standard political technique i mean that's that's been every time anybody asserts anything there's a kind of bald assertion of the opposite no matter how ridiculous that might be on its face so we've got we're in you know we're in a situation where we're overloaded with information at all times and and it's very very hard for the average person who hasn't got time or energy or skills to to discern the truth to actually to actually do that so the re so the the result is a kind of massive loss of trust and people feel that they're at sea in uh, in a world of competing opinions and you know i've i've watched friends and and acquaintances uh, fall down conspiracy rabbit holes because they can't they don't have a hierarchy anymore of of what seems plausible and what doesn't and uh and that you know that's another part of red pill and the and the the kind of atmosphere i wanted to to portray in the novel is is that feeling of being at sea in a world of connections yeah well i mean i think about QAnon uh being one of the more prominent examples of that you know and i think about the you know the things that i was talking about with regard to the stasi and you know the the melding of digital culture with um, older spy school techniques like i can't help but wonder like who the hell is like behind all that and to what end is it or is it just some sort of dude in his basement you know who spends a lot of time on forums and you know got some traction with this meme and just was having fun with it and it got out of control you know i mean there's some there's some good investigation that's been done on on that and an interest and and, and in classic kind of 4chan 8chan fashion it's 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 something that started out as a joke that then became serious like there was a fashion on 4chan and 8chan before all this took off for posting as if you were an insider like for basically writing a little piece of you know a flash fiction from the in the voice of you know i'm actually deep i'm embedded in a place under the white house and i'm going to tell you the the, the secret truth and and that kind of you know, everybody likes that stuff in a kind of you know by school kind of way and then somebody and and the guy who eventually started with the account that started posting as q had a few goes at doing that before anybody paid any attention there are q drops from like several months before the first sort of one that got traction where they were just kind of making a bunch of assertions about about all this kind of you know trump is this secret superhero who's going to take down the child traffickers and, and 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 bring in you know good times for all and then and then it did get picked up and then there's a sort of layer of you know is it ironic is it serious is it fiction is it fact but it's fun to promote so it got it got taken off and then what happened that i think people couldn't have predicted was it leapt over the sort of species barrier between the the denizens of the chans into the kind of suburban world of the of the trumpy soccer mom and 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 q became as we you know now know this sort of huge cultural phenomenon and from what i understand the account maybe belonged to somebody and was then stolen by uh somebody else possibly a man called jim watkins who's the owner of 8chan who uh then you know there's a point where the the drops very change very much in tone and um anyways but you know but it, it's almost like regardless of, of of who's who's doing it at that point the fact that there were these 
supposed voices of secret truth coming out that everybody could you know when there was a new drop the q groups would kind of gather on people's youtube live streams or whatever and dissect it and it on all the kind of almost all the kind of traditional slightly sort of marginal like uh, numerology and the sort of things that, that that people do with bible verses and stuff you know people use the same techniques to to analyze that and they got a real sense of community out of it and it became this massive massive thing and now you know you look at how it how it kind of headed off into instagram influencer culture there's a very weird zone of of sort of yoga slash q now i mean that the q the q Q shaman guy is very much part of that so i mean a lot of people who would be worried about chemtrails or you know putting bad things into their body or or you know not being told the truth about some other thing were very receptive as it turned out to this to this uh political story that q was telling i mean the whole thing's falling apart now because there are no more q drops and uh and it's kind of fading into a sort of more general kind of anxious paranoia. It hasn't got the kind of narrative focus of the imminent arrest of the Democrats and the storm and all and all that kind of thing. But but you know none of none of the conditions that made it possible have gone away. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's like I think there's a part of me as somebody who's an outside observer and like many arms lengths away. I, I don't. In, I never, I didn't, you know, I read about QAnon, um, especially in the last like quarter of the Trump administration, as it really started to gain traction. I would read it. I would read an article about it here and there, but I never like went and observed it or I just didn't have time to engage. And yet when I'm thinking about how much, like how much traction it has among a certain faction of the population and how we now have like QAnon Congresswomen actually in our leadership structure, it would make somebody like me wonder if the person behind it is operating with like a level of sophistication that say an intelligence operative would have that that's at least like, I think that's kind of a logical idea. Like, wow, is somebody pulling the strings back there who really knows how to manipulate people? You know, I don't know whether that's necessarily, I don't know whether that's necessary for that to happen. I mean, this is the kind of, this is the fascinating thing about, you know internet storms of one or another i mean the kind of you know the the power and reach of q is incredible so it's natural to assume that there must be a guiding you know you'd have to be smart in order to put that together but i think so often it's just a kind of almost like a kind of economy of scale and everybody kind of contributes like it's like wikipedia it's like a kind of wikipedia of disinformation q right right at this point it's it's now a kind of nexus of all sorts of conspiracy thinking a lot of which predates q by hundreds of years i mean the illuminati story all the kind of you know all the anti-semitic kind of bankers in zurich stuff that's involved chemtrails the the it's like a kind of clearinghouse of you know of all this stuff and that you know people people stitch them together in you know there's there's a if you google the uh, q map there's a wonderful sort of wigged out supposed diagram of everything involved in q i mean atlantis is in there you know it's uh, (laughs) (laughs) they've left nothing to chance we've got everything so yeah i mean you know i mean i think i think kind of if you know if if you're a bad actor of some kind you can you you can you can use this to to kind of create chaos and then take advantage of the chaos but i don't think you need it doesn't need a guiding a guiding hand in order to happen well 
your book is not about QAnon, but it in some ways it might as well be. I, I kind of think of like the old iceberg theory. Like, you know, you have the the novel red pill is is above the surface, and then there's all this stuff, you know, that I feel like you have been considering, like I've been considering, um, at least to some degree. And you've rendered a, a fiction that uh, it's just deeply intelligent. It has a historical lens. It has a literary and philosophical lens. It obviously has a political lens. Um, the fact that it's set in Germany or largely set in Germany. Uh, there's there's so many different layers that like I'm still kind of sorting out my feelings on it. And I feel like I need to do additional reading to kind of put it all together. And that's a, that's a credit to you. I'm trying to compliment you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's, it's a, it's a book that's like smarter than I am. And I always appreciate that. Uh, and it also solves, you know, it, it solves the problem of like how to respond to what we've just lived through in fiction in an effective way. And I think that's been the concern of a lot of novelists and just like credit to you for being able to do it in such quick, uh, you know, such a rapid fire. It's like a rapid response to what we just went through, but in a way that feels measured. And I think knowing what I know about you now, you know, the fact that you, you were on 4chan back in the early aughts, like no wonder you're the person to be able to do this. (laughs) It turns, yeah, even, even the kind of weirdest distractions turn out to be useful eventually. Well, but I think too, like some people, you know, I think writers in general, have good antenna um you know you're picking up signals maybe that most people either don't have the time or the ability to pick up um and you just you know you're you're out there with a good antenna and you're picking up signals and we're lucky to have somebody who's able to kind of process things for us um in this way i don't know that's a, there's a sense of gratitude that i have it's like okay thank god somebody's out there standing on the wall watching this stuff <laughs> And that's, that's a wonderful compliment. Thank you so much. Um, well, I enjoyed it, and I, I enjoyed our time uh, talking. I guess, like, maybe a way to close uh, would be twofold. First of all, you know, you, you said this earlier, you know, you don't know how things are going to go. Like, it, we haven't reached any kind of, like, celebratory finish line with the dismissal of Trump. Um, like, do you have a sense of where things are headed? Like, what where, where are you concerned about today? And where do you feel good? You know, like, what's your general take on on how we need to go from here? Wow, I wish I wish I had uh, I had the answer. I'd be kind of saying, yeah, pointing this way, follow me. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think we we certainly need to focus on the kind of material conditions of people in the wake of the pandemic. I think the pandemic has exposed a great deal of very rickety infrastructure in various ways, kind of, you know, physical infrastructure, organizational infrastructure, and in a way kind of cultural infrastructure. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the things that we thought we had backstopped, we don't have backstopped. And, uh, and I think we need to build resilience and, and that's going to, that's going to require, it's going to require quite a lot of listening to people who are very different from ourselves and it's going to have to do, require a, a great deal of cooperation. So, I mean, I think that's the, you know, if, if there's a, a tendency I would like to encourage, it would be towards building that resiliency. And then what about uh next book? Have you uh, started something new or are you just, 
taken a break after this one? I, I have, yeah. And and I mean, there's a sort of, the idea is to kind of complete a, a very loose trilogy. The novel before Red Pill is called White Tears, and this next one is called Blue Ruin. Um, that old phrase, which was a uh, you know a nickname for gin, in fact. But uh, but but Blue Ruin is a um, you know is I'm going to say anything about about it in plot terms, but it is it has it has some sort of family resemblance to the other two books, and it has I, I know, inevitably because of when I'm writing it has the same sort of anxious under undertow to it as mm. well. Yeah, well, again, I'm also making it's making me think of the I think it's Christoph Kislowski. Didn't he have uh, he had the red, white, and blue oh, films yeah. of back in three colors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a maybe it's a nod to that or just like a coincidence. Yeah, well. I've, you know, everything's connected. Right, right. That's my conspiracy theory. We'll end it there. Hari Kunzru is uh, somehow connected to Christoph Kislowski. <laughs> right. Thanks, Brad. Really nice to talk to you. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is Hari Kunzru. His latest novel, Red Pill, is available now from Knopf. Go get your copy. It's a wonderful book. You can find Hari online at Hari Kunzru. Com. You can also track him down on Twitter. His handle over there is at Hari Kunzru. Hari Kunzru is also a podcaster, I should mention. His show is called Into the Zone. It's available from Pushkin Industries. It's all about binary oppositions and how borders are never as clear as we think. Again, the name of the show is Into the Zone. And the novel, one more time, is called Red Pill. Go get it immediately. This program is available free of charge. It's it's offered freely. It's a listener-supported show. If you like it, if you listen regularly and you have the means, support it. Tip your server. You can do so for as little as a dollar a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get uh, all sorts of gear. There are prizes. I'll write you a postcard. I'll wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to write to me, the show's email address is letters at other PPL.com. Don't forget this program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. Next week on the program... It's a bit of a TBD. I think it's going to be Gina Frangello for my 700th podcast episode. Gina's an old pal. She wrote a book called Blow Your House Down that uh, is just a whale of a book. That's how I describe it. It's a whale of a book. It's a monster. So stay tuned for that. 700 episodes. What do you think? If for some reason it's not Gina, it'll be somebody else. I always podcast on time. (laughs) It's the best I can say about myself. (laughs) 